Hello, my name's Russell Howcroft. I've lived a lot of lives. I've been an ad man, a CEO, a chair, an author, a panelist, and I currently co-host a radio show on 3AW. And I'm partner and chief creative officer at The Sayers Group. And I'm host of this podcast. Welcome to Conversations, a Sayers podcast. Throughout my time, I've learned that so much in life starts with, yep, a good conversation. And that's what we're going to do right here today. I'm thrilled today. We're speaking to Ki Wong. Uh, Ki Wong is a entrepreneur, investor, advisor, and is a non-executive director. Um, I have met Ki a few times, probably first time, I'm going to say maybe five years ago. Ki is a dead set star and um, someone that we at, on the sales conversation are thrilled to be speaking to. So g'day Ki. Good morning. Nice to see you. Now, what we do first of all with our Sayers podcast is we we really want you to be relaxed. So what I want you to do is just have a listen to a few sounds mm-hmm. and then I'm going to ask you which of the sounds mm-hmm. sort of uh, is a most evocative for you yep. and puts you in a conversational space. So okay. Freddie's, Freddie's the producer here. Freddie, okay. um, let's I'm go to ready. the secret sounds. Yeah. <laughs> Beautifully done, Freddie. Okay, so what have we got? We've got fireside, let's call it fireside. We've got beach, we've got pub, we've got maybe sailing mm-hmm. um, and out in the forest going for a walk. Okay, so where are we, Key, having this beach. conversation? Beach. Everyone always chooses the beach. I, I can tell you why. <laughs> yeah, tell us why. I grew up on an island. Okay. So the beach. So the beach is very connected to me. Okay, fantastic. So you and I are on, our, on a beach. Um, we're under an umbrella, we've got yep. our towels and we're having a, an awesome conversation. Yep. Happy with that? Yep. So I described you up front as an entrepreneur, investor, advisor, non-exec director. So yep. um, I think you're more than that, but any, just tell me, how do you describe yourself? Okay. Um, describing myself, um, I am an introvert who has extrovert skills. Okay. Nice. Um, I'm a geek who works in a business environment and, and can talk business. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a minority in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, a voice for minority is something that I'm very passionate about. Like it. Um, and I am ambitious in my younger days. Today, I like to think about helping other people with ambition mm-hmm. to succeed. Um, and I'm, you know, I've got many interests which I find myself challenged with making time for those interests because mm-hmm. I'm still very much a driven person who likes to get things done right. during the day. Okay. Well, I would suggest that that's what I've observed. Yeah. Um, no, no doubt that the... Um, the idea of Ki Wong um, being an introvert with extrovert, you know, well, what? So you're extrovert in the you. I actually think you're extroverted in that you want others to succeed. That's where you project your ex- extroversion. Yeah. So, but for people who don't know me personally, would think I'm an extrovert in nature. Mm. I'm not. I've learned extroverted skills because you know through my life and things that I do, 
I need to be extra an extrovert. Okay. But if I'm on my own, given my own choice, I'd rather be on my own at home. Okay. All right. So when we first met, um, we were having a conversation about education, actually. Yeah. And a conversation about... Um, uh, I think I think I had a son that was doing maybe he was in year eleven, moving into year twelve. Yeah. And y- you you said look, what I like to do is advise anyone that's thinking about what a tertiary you know what tertiary course or indeed career they should undertake. Yes. You said anthropology to me. Yes. And uh, I well a I remembered it, so I must <laughs> I really thought gee that is so interesting. So yeah. uh, have you changed your mind or and if not, just explain to us why anthrop you see anthropology as a as a Really terrific um, career or something to teach, uh, something to learn about. Well, I haven't had the opportunity to study anthropology myself, and through life, what I've discovered two skills, especially in today's world where technology is driving everything, and everybody looks at technology as the end goal and solution. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we're humans, right. and anthropology and psychology are the two studies that make human understanding um, possible. Uh. And so for me, if you can understand human, you can work with anything. So anthropology gives you that that grassroots skill sets of being able to make sense of a very complex world. I like it. You're also an ideas guy Um, at the same lunch. You were explaining to me that there's an opportunity for... um, the air rights above rail line. Yeah. Um, we went further. You said, well, as taxis become Uber or, or as we have the opportunity to be in Uber Air, yeah. Uber Air, yeah. um, then what laneways are they going to use? Yeah. So the laneway that makes sense is a laneway above a train line. I mm-hmm. thought, gee, this could <laughs> I mean, I like a good idea. Yeah. Um, how do you go selling ideas like that? So tell me about that part of your life. Well... Sometimes ideas click and people get it and sometimes it takes a long time. So you got to be able to have ideas that will work in the fast lane and the slow lane. Ah. Um, Urban air mobility was something that we talked about. Um, It's it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Um, Now you get the large um, aviation company like Boeing, etc. making vehicles that are what we call urban air mobility um, transport system, Mm -hmm. which is basically flying cars. Yeah. Now that concept, we all remember Jetsons. Yeah. But it's coming. Well, well, the f- you know the idea that I can speak on my f- on my watch. Yeah, that was when when we were kids. That was something Getsmart. that we yeah yeah. And we James l- Bond. <laughs> exactly yeah. right. God, I remember the first digital watch I saw. That was in the James Bond film. Yeah, it was you know it was extraordinary, wasn't it? Yeah. I I, I think about um Elon Musk, and it, it interested me that when he was growing up, yeah, um he he did read a lot of science fiction. Yeah. Um, I. Uh, Asimov? Did he read a lot of Isaac Asimov? I Isaac think Isaac Asimov. Yeah. yeah, and so the idea that you can actually paint a picture f- uh, for the future. Yeah, um, it's a long idea. Yes, a- and then I suppose what pick the things that you think are going to work, and then and then is this part of what you do? Yeah. So so as a child, I mean Isaac Asimov, but also I used to read a lot of Scientific American. <laughs> you know, when I was going through school. So I've been, like I said, I'm a geek. Uh, always has been. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I still am. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, sometimes you need geeks to change the world. I mean, geeks are changing the world. Oh, totally. Right. Um, the rise of the geek. And, uh, and I think ideas is one of those things that the more you talk about it with people, the more you learn through either business or non-business environment. If you're constant, constantly contemplating things, yeah. ideas sometimes just drop in the moment where you least expect it. Yeah. You know, but you can't get those ideas dropping in if you haven't done your contemplated com- contemplation thinking. Yeah, and, and you got to know they're a good idea as well. So, yeah. um, so I suppose that's part of the contemplated yeah thinking, right? Yes. So you're thinking through just life generally. Is that yeah. is that what it is? Thinking through life generally, but also I think I've always had a curious mind. I mean, I'll go back a little bit to get you to understand why I try to understand the world a little bit. Uh, I was a tortured soul before I discovered physics uh, and chemistry. Uh, when I was young, I always wondered why the world it is, you know, why mm-hmm. things fall, you know, how gravity works and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, at the time when you're in primary school, the teachers don't go outside of the boundaries of teaching you the science that they can teach you. Yeah. And then my whole world opened up when I get to secondary uh, education when subjects like physics and chemistry and biology opens up mm-hmm. say this is now a study about how things work right. in the world. So since then I've been always having a curious mind to try and explore uh, as much as I can around things so that I can explain it in a simple form to other people. I like it. Okay, so given that we've gone back in time, that's great. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, I'm going to be crass here for a minute. Sure. Uh, an old mate of mine said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Yeah. Now you have like let's let's yeah. be clear. You yeah. you are a successful man. Yeah. Right? So tell us what what is what were the diamonds that created that success? Um, I don't know. Maybe maybe I was born in a family that did not have much. I mean, we we're comfortable. Uh, Mum and dad um, always had the means to provide us with the basics, yeah. meaning good education, etc. So when I came to Australia, I came as a student over 40 years ago. I was determined not to put burden on my on my family as much as I can. So I tried and be as reliable as I can on my own. Mm-hmm. So I worked, you know, um, in the morning. I worked in the evening. I worked over summer uh, to fund myself through education, which I did. Uh, and in doing that, you find a certain level of determination and resilience. And, uh, and that carried on for me. Okay. Um, and I'll tell you a bit of a story about my best education. I, and I, I share this rarely, but while I've got multiple degrees, my best education came from being a waiter. <laughs> yeah, tell us more. And because um, I sucked at waitering when I first started working as a waiter. But you were no good at something. I was not good at something. <laughs> and, uh, and then I looked at my other waiters who are professional waiters they do it for a living and do it with such ease mm-hmm. in terms of the organizational skills and i thought i have two options one is i was studying engineering at the time at monash and i'm thinking well you know what i'm pretty okay with my brain uh this is not for me uh take the highbrow approach and walk yeah. away from it yeah or i say there's a certain skill set that i haven't mastered yeah these people do it with such ease it's not about academic uh, um, uh achievement it's not about intellect it's about organizational skill. So I persisted. Uh, and, uh, and it's the best education I got. Good man. Okay, so you've left university. Um, and d- 
did you work on your own from the beginning? Because, you know, the headline act is that Kiwong's an entrepreneur. Yeah. And, and what, what do we do? We Immediately when we hear the word entrepreneur, we think someone who's done it for themselves. Yeah. So tell us about that, um, that part of your life. So I was trained as an engineer and I worked as an engineer for a while. Uh, and I also started working as an engineer when I was doing my post-grad mm-hmm. um, studies, uh, doing my master's. And very s- quickly, I was thrown in the deep end. Um, I was working at the Bureau of Meteorology as a, as a hydrologist and um, water engineer. Mm-hmm. So it's flood season right now. Um, I don't know to what extent some of the app that I built for predicting floods are still being used by the Bureau. Ah. I, I don't think that engineering science have changed much. So I wrote quite a lot of software to predict flood levels on the Bowen River, the Ovens River, the King River, uh, the Snowy River, etc. Because what it is, is you're taking rainfall data and then predicting how much of rain and, and then understanding the hydrology of the landscape mm-hmm. of that river catchment and then predicting flood levels through a, a theoretical uh, model called a unit graph theory. And, uh, and you can just put the data in and then you kind of use computer software to model what different flood levels are going to be at different times of the day as the flood progresses. Right. Um, the engineer that I was working with at the time, the senior engineer, his name, his name was Tom Main, and he was the head engineer in that division. I was doing my internship with him. And I remember clearly that um, I had lunch with him after I left um, uh, working over my, my, my period of internship with him. And then he, um, he's, a, he's a very keen bushwalker and he trained other bushwalkers. Mm-hmm. And he was training other trainers um, at, uh, I think it's Mount Bogong. Yeah, okay. Uh, over winter and the snow moved and he went with the snow oh. and he passed away. Oh dear. And they okay. did not find his body until spring. I was then called in by the bureau to say, okay, can you step up into this role? Okay. And so I was very quickly put into a, an experienced position with lack of experience. That is a life story right there. I, um, I persisted. I did the job. Mm-hmm. So it's called learning fast. Okay. And that kind of set off my career. I just have to interrupt. Um, have you had a look at the, let's call it the small type, at the bottom of the bomb website lately? So the exclusion clause, Yes, you need to have a look at that, okay? okay. Because if it's not you, it's someone's got to, you've got some work to do. Right. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's it. You're in the Bureau. Yeah. So you're a public servant. I was uh, part-time. Okay, but doing other things. Yeah. Entrepreneurial things. Yeah. So, so I was at Bureau. I was an entrepreneur then. I, I was an engineer. So I then did engineering work working for a consulting firm in structures. So basically my specialty is actually structural engineering. Uh-huh. And all the work that I did is computer work because you're using computer software to analyze structural behavior, et cetera, design structures. And that led me into the computing industry. Right. Um, what year around about? Uh, that would be about the late 80s. Okay, so things are starting to move pretty, yeah. pretty quickly. Yeah. And I worked for the first computer company I worked for was a um, Silicon Valley company, uh, Tandem Computers. And Tandem had an R&D, Research and Development Centre, outside of their head office in Cupertino in 
in, in Silicon Valley. Right. And the reason for that, uh, I was told then, uh, back in the 80s and 90s, the federal government says that any foreign technology companies who wants to bid for federal contract needs to have the capacity to show that they're actually doing good for the country and that is generating export revenue for Australia. Yeah, okay. So the simple way out for a lot of multinational companies is to set up an R&D plant in Australia nice. and do the R&D software and then sell it back to parent company in the US. So this is, um, this this is where I, I did my work. <laughs> this is an opportunity too. Yeah. So, so I did my work there learning something I never knew before. Again, when you do software analysis in engineering, it's different. I'm now writing software that makes computer work. Mm. Uh, and Tandem was famous for what they call non-stop system. In other words, all the banks and stock exchange around the world uses the software because it never fails. So they have software that can control memory that's got backup memory, controllers that got backup controllers, CPU that backup CPU. In other words, if one CPU stops, the right. other one takes over. Okay, yeah. And this got proven in 1989, earthquake in San Francisco. Because I was downloading some software, uploading software to parent company in Silicon Valley, and we started noticing that some of the computer nodes have dropped off and came back up again. And so we knew about San Francisco's so, uh, earthquake before even the news media here knew. Ah, that is extraordinary. In Australia. Right. Yep. Okay, so then um, did that provide an opportunity for you to be, uh, I was thinking, outsource, an outsourced person for yeah. um, Silicon Valley? So at the time, I think um, the outsourcing industry was only starting and it was starting mostly in India. And so that led me to uh, to career in consulting, management consulting, and then to working with IBM. Nice. So okay. So when I was working with IBM, it was an Asia-Pacific practice around what was emerging as an e-business group. Um, and at the time, IBM had already got a lot of outsource uh, centers in capabilities in India. And India was very entrepreneurial in terms of how it got into the IT industry. And one of the amazing things is connecting the dots. So starting from the late 80s and into 90s, the world was aware that there's a ticking time bomb. It was called Y2K. Yep. And when Y2K became more prominent, um, there was only one country who could sell their capabilities to the world. A country that had a lot of engineers, a lot of maths and science, a lot of computing people yeah. that spoke English. And that was? India. Of course. And so what India had to do is to prove to the world that they can be reliable. Right, okay. And so the way they did that is to uh, work with um, Carnegie Mellon University in, in Pittsburgh, which is a highly reputed university, to come up with a standard to prove reliability uh, of uh, doing work in IT. Uh -huh. So it's called the CMM, Capability Maturity Model. Yeah, okay. And they got that model set up independently but then they work to certify it to level five certification. Okay, and is that certifying individuals or companies? Companies. 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 I get it. Okay, so if I recall when I was with IBM, IBM was only certified level three, <laughs> but there were about ten companies in India certified level level five. Amazing. All right. So that's how they sold their capabilities to the world. Yeah, and, and it created a whole industry for India. And does um, you, your business was eccentric? Eccentric. Eccentric innovations. innovations. Yeah. So yeah. what? Tell me about the core skill of eccentric innovations. 
So when I left IBM, I started Eccentric Innovation. Yep. And Eccentric Innovation is a business that helps corporate and government uh, deal with their needs for technology. Right. Okay. So we have consultants that help with our clients talking about what their needs are, etc. So our capability is high end, but we're boutique. Uh -huh. So it doesn't come with a, with the, with a corporate shall we say, inertia that sometimes people have to deal with when you work with large companies. Okay, so um, you're advising them on what they should take on board or are you also helping them implement? Both. Okay, terrific. Yeah. And you're still doing that? Still doing that. Okay, magnificent. So yeah. I, I'm going to read some of the things that you've um, also done. Um, you've been a board director of LaunchVic. Yes. Um, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. Yes. Board director. Australian Services Roundtable board yeah. member. Fed Square board member. Yeah. NGV board member, mm -hmm. uh, immediate past chairman of the Australian Information Industry Association. Yes. Uh, of course, you've started a lot of... Uh, deputy chairman of AsiaLink. Yes. Currently a board member of CarSales. Yes. Uh, board member of the Institute of Company Directors. Yes. Still? Yeah. Uh, committee for Melbourne. Yes. Nice. Um, council member of University of uh, Vic, Victoria University. Yes. It's all pretty... Have I missed anything? Um <laughs> Uh, Invocare, which is another ASX-listed company. Yes. Um, well, I've got a and, few as well. And, and Breakthrough Victoria. Breakthrough Victoria. And uh, and also IEMO. IEMO. The Australian Energy Market Operator. Okay. Oh, you are too. The whole of Australia I heard about that, that one in June. <laughs> this year. For the first time we heard yeah. about that. Uh, okay. So, which gives me the opportunity to ask you, how can Australia possibly... Um, not have enough supply of energy in order to keep the price at a reasonable level? Uh, it's a complex uh, question, Russell. No simple answer to that. No, but um, we've got a lot of energy. We have. We, we are blessed. Mm. We're blessed with natural resources um, in many ways. Uh, gas obviously is one, and gas get contracted long term. Yes. Uh, it's both commercial and political, I guess, in, in that dimension. Mm. Um, Australia is a, a participant of open market, open economy. Uh, we value trading contracts. Yes. Um, and so those get fed into that equation. We've got lots of sun, a lot of wind. We've got a lot of coal. Yes. And we also have uranium. Yeah. If there's one country that will never run out of energy, it's Australia. Yeah, yeah. There are many different constraints that are time dependent. Our grid can't feed all that energy in if you have them all today. Right. Uh, so there needs to be a transition. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of physics and engineering that goes into how you actually create electrons, transmit it, and get it consumed. And, uh, and so a whole heap of work needs to be done to get us from where we are to a place where we want to be, which is the entire grid runs on renewable energy and it's reliable, it's stable, it's economical. I got excited, um, I suppose it's a while ago now, when I read about a solar farm that's being produced up in the Northern Territory to pump energy into Singapore. It's, it's happening right now. They're building transmission lines to pump it in. Like, and, and so presumably the technology uh, must have got to the point where it's, a, well, it's able to um, extract energy from the sun in the Northern Territory and then stick it on, stick it on what? A pipe. Yeah. yeah. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. And it's quite a long way to Singapore. Well, it's, um, you can transmit all over thousands of kilometres yeah. and gas from the Russian things to Europe. Yeah. Um, if the commodity is worth doing, engineering can always make it happen. Okay, I like the sound of that. Now, I did want to ask you, there's a few things that I know you're doing right now. or Well, where you have just been, I should say, 
to the STS Forum. Yes. In Tokyo. In Kyoto. In Kyoto. Yeah. So tell us about that. I, I hadn't heard of it until you told me about it the other day at a cup of, over a cup of coffee. So tell me about that. Yeah, so the SDS Forum was founded almost 20 years ago by a gentleman who's just passed away this year, Oji Komi. Uh, he was the finance minister of Japan when he started this. Um, there's a feeling that science and technology in society, that's what SDS stands for, is a much-needed topic. So a bit of vision mm -hmm. from uh, Omi-san uh, 20 years ago where the emergence of science and technology and how it impacts society is not well understood yep. or certainly if it's understood in small circle of people and then it's not discussed at a global stage. Right. Okay. So SDS Forum is a global uh, forum where a lot of countries sent representatives, academia, government and business to discuss the light and shadow of technology and science. And did you see, hear anything exciting? Anything that you said, hang on, that's an awesome long idea and it's reminded me of Isaac Asimov? Um, look, I mean, nothing that is earth-shattering, um, but it is certainly a contemporary uh, uh, science technology issue that, that needs to be dealt with. I mean, we, we, we've been through the cycle of, you know, going back 20 years ago, if you see a, a, a Hollywood movie about technology that doesn't yet exist, you say, well, maybe the future's coming and we're living it. Yeah. The, 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 the thing about today is we are living everything that you could imagine. The question is, the next generation of things that come mm. will be an extension of what we already know, right. but society handling it in a different way. So, for example, medicine. Uh, precision medicine or personal medicine, yeah. is something that I wish we have. So, for example, Russell, if you and I had cancer, mm -hmm. our treatment would exactly be the same. Yeah, it's yeah. called fishing with hand grenades. Yeah, yeah, I get right? it. Yep. You chuck a hand grenade in and all the fish will die, yep. rather than you want to catch that particular fish. Yeah. Right? So, so you and I have got physiological um, things that are similar, but the treatment for you and for me will be very different because our nuances between us yep. so medicine leading to uh, precision medicine um, how far it, away are we do you think it's um, it's hard yeah. we still struggle to find cure for cancer it's interesting isn't it um, doing the radio job that I do yeah. um, it, it's incredible how often in any given week medical breakthrough stories uh, yeah. are what people want to talk about and what, yeah. we, and what we, frankly, we want to interview people about. Yeah. We've convinced ourselves that Melbourne is about the, as good as it gets when it comes to science, medical science. It is. Uh, yeah, is that true? It is. So the other board that I'm on is actually the Walter Eliza Hall Institute, yeah. uh, WEHI. The first medical research organisation in Australia. Um, I believe it was founded in 1910 or 1915, so it's over 100 years old. Yeah, great. Um, it's, it's produced Nobel laureates. Uh, we've invented many things. Um, and I think we are world-renowned regard, and regarded. Uh, but general Australians don't know about us. So, Key, you and I, and Freddie, producer yeah. Freddie, we, we know that we live in a... We know we live in a brilliant city. I think, I yeah. think in our heart of hearts... I know you're a great Melbourneian. I know yeah. you love being um, a part of Melbourne. Yeah. What do we need to do, though, to really... to to ensure that we um, continue to grow and to thrive and to not, I suppose, look, rest on our laurels. Yeah. Well, I think we need to get back to the spirit of the 1800s, yeah. Melbourne. Yeah. You know, I, um, I might have told you about a book that's well written uh, called 
10 cities that made the empire. You did, and I have it as a result. Right. And so Melbourne was a, was a global city back in the 1800s. Yeah. Um, we were one of the richest cities in the world. We are proud of our city then. Mm. And we should actually try and revive some of that pride back into today. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, yeah. and highly recommend the book as well. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the um, well, the chapter on Melbourne, one of the paragraphs that really stood out for me was a, an English visitor yeah. who wrote um, that to walk the streets of Melbourne compared to Sydney. Yes. And um, Sydney, you know, didn't energise him in particular. Yeah. But the streets of Melbourne, he could feel the entrepreneurial, creative energy of the, C, of the, C, of the CBD. Yeah. Um, which, I, which, which we've lost certainly for a while, haven't we? Yeah. We have, and I think it's coming back, uh, but we need to amplify it a little bit more. Mm. So just outside of uh, the city of Melbourne is a little suburb called Cremorne, yes. which is... Silicon Block. Silicon Block, Silicon Yarra, yeah. uh, Silicon Cremorne. Yeah. It's a bit of Silicon Valley in Melbourne. It's true, right? Yeah, it is very true. Yeah, I, I, certainly my old world in the advertising, there's a lot, a lot of digital agencies there. but there are there, is. But are there other sort of technology, science-orientated businesses there? There is. Uh, so four of our largest tech companies is based there. Of course. Car sales is one of them. Of course. REA, realestate.com. Seek. Seek. And MYOB. Right. And in today's paper, uh, Blackbird Ventures yep. is in Cremorne. Yeah. They've just raised uh, one of the largest, in fact, the largest uh, VC fund, $1 billion. How good. I mean, really, Silicon Block. In, yep. in Cremorne. Um, I did want to ask you, uh, related, mm. Breakthrough, the Breakthrough Fund Victoria. Right. So that's something which I don't know that a lot of us are aware of. Not a lot of people know because it's only started last year. Okay, but I think it is a step in the right direction by Victorian government. First government in Australia that actually has finally taken uh, an approach that says that we as a government can do good, profit from it, and not be shy of it. Okay. So that there's an evergreen fund that can continue to build wealth for the state. Okay. So it can continue to build wealth for the state. That's about the fund placing bets. So the fund has got independent board, uh, chaired by John Brumby, our former premier. Yeah, lovely. And um, and the skill sets around the table, including myself, is quite diverse. People with legal, tech, investment. Uh, government, academia, academia. So there's a good mix of people with skill sets around the table that can help uh, the executives and the investment committee decide on how best to make investment across five different sectors. Then we think uh, comparative advantage for Victoria. Okay, brilliant. Uh, bio health uh -huh. is and, and medical is one. Uh, advanced manufacturing is another. Yes. Uh, clean economy, yep. energy, environment. Yep. Yeah, great. Another, uh, digital technologies. Another, and agriculture and food. So we think that those five are sectors that we can actually promote uh, wealth uh, generating companies and businesses to invest in. Okay, and so what do we need to do? When I say we, you, and hopefully I can help you. Yeah. <laughs> to to promote the idea of the break the of this breakthrough fund because that's yep. got that's something that people should be excited about. Sure. So I think most people, maybe not the general street person, but most people would know that Singapore is a very successful yeah. nation. Yeah. And Singapore 
continues to have two investment vehicles that helps the nation become more successful and creating wealth for the future. One of, one of them is GIC and the other one is Temasek. Now, Temasek is probably the more famous mm-hmm. of, of the one. Think of the Breakthrough Fund primarily as a mini Temasek, okay, what we're creating here. Okay. So, so people should understand that while it's funded by government, it's independent. And so therefore, it can make independent choices. It's not government's decision. It's Breakthrough Victoria's decision to invest. And when we invest, we have a mandate of making sure that the fund is successful. In other words, there needs to be returned. Right. Okay. But at the same time, we, we, we make choices about investment that have high impact. Whether that impact is going to create jobs, whether that impact is going to create um, a, a new industry, whether that's going to attract skills and talent that we don't already have to come to the state so that we can build them. So these are a combination of things that we say will be something that we would do in addition to making sure that the fund returns. Now, um, being successful, being entrepreneurial, doing brilliantly in society and impacting society, something that not just yourself, of course, Key has done, but now now, um, your wife passed away not that long ago. She also had a brilliant business. She was a successful... She's probably more successful than I am. Fashion? We've known each other since since I was 18 and she was 17. We grew up together. Mm. Uh, we came to Australia. We did education together. We started our careers together, and we support each other, but uh, very much independent on our own as well. Mm-hmm. She was a phenomenal individual, um, highly regarded by many. Yes, and and a and very successful, very successful, yeah, um, person in her own right. Yeah, and I used to say to why that she. She had what we call a triple whammy when we come to uh, trying to make um, successful for someone like us in Australia. Mm-hmm. So um, speaking frankly, we still have some friction in, in Australia when you are not white Anglo and male. Right. Um, so she had all three against her. Right. She's non-white, yep. she's female, right. and she's small. <laughs> and uh, I have a story to share that she used to run a successful business that is now part of the premier investment group, mm-hmm. uh, the Just Group, and she was the chief operating officer running the entire operations. Come Christmas time, it's always going to be interesting for her at the warehouse <laughs> because uh, people are starting to agitate um, about demands. And the warehouse in Sydney uh, requested her presence to talk to a union leader. And uh, I think the union leader might be expecting a white male uh, to come in to meet with him and then got completely gazumped by the fact that he was meeting an Asian, small Asian woman. Yeah, yeah with a big brain yeah. and highly capable. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so things got resolved to her advantage. <laughs> Good on her. I, and I hope you don't mind me bringing, uh, bringing her up either. No. Okay. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad I didn't sort of uh, got too emotional to break all, down all, the cuspid. All good. Okay, so... Key, um, I think we might just um, actually, Freddie. I always ask Freddie if he's got something that he would like to ask um, of our guest. Key, yeah. so I don't know if he's got anything to ask. You don't have to, Freddie. Yeah. Okay, go for it. Thanks, Key, um, and Russ. Uh, so uh, when you mentioned at the st- uh, at the start um, of a chat, uh, you mentioned how you were sort of a naturally inclined introvert, yeah. and then you've developed these extroversion skills. 
Um, so I imagine being an engineer uh, that you approached that process, you know, a little scientifically. Yes. Uh, throughout the process, do you remember any sort of uh, notable hypotheses uh, that you worked off, um, you know, whether they were successful or not? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, I'll probably answer in two ways. Um, I so, so to learn to be an extrovert uh, is to step outside your comfort zone and be comfortable when people are present that you'd rather not be there with. So, and it takes a bit of training to do. But the second answer to your question around a hypothesis is something that I found very useful in terms of how an entrepreneur or any person or organization wants to create continuous success. And that is a concept called a sigmoid curve. Now, the sigmoid curve was written by an author called Charles Handy. And Charles Handy is a management writer. Uh, the Age of Unreason. Age of Unreason is one of the book, but the one that I found where he talked about the sigmoid curve, and he might also talk about that in his other books, it's called The Empty Raincoat. Oh, yeah, yes. The Empty Raincoat. And what the sigmoid curve is, is pretty much simple. In everything in life, whether it's business, idea, uh, marriage, or whatever, it follows the same path. There's a time horizon, on, um, on the horizontal time horizon, vertical value. And the curve could rise, peaks, and fall. So the only way you can maintain success over time is not to stick to the same curve uh -huh. as it starts to decline, but to start a new curve right at the beginning when the curve, the old curve is starting to actually decline. I like it. <laughs> That's outstanding, Key. Yeah. So, Key, it's been fantastic. Being on the beach with you, yeah. um, I love... I, thank you for reminding me of Charles Handy. Yeah. I, I have... Um, I've got two books of his at home. I'll bring, yeah. I'll bring them into the studio so, Freddie, you can have a look as well. Yeah. Um, I also love the idea of a slow idea and a fast idea. Yeah. Um, and that, to me just relates perhaps to how we ought to divide things up in our own minds and in, in our own ambitions. Yep. Yeah, what's a short ambition? What's a long-term ambition? It's been brilliant chatting to you, Keith. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Really enjoyed it.